I told you, uh, Nijay, in one of our last uh, episodes that uh, I've been teaching a class on uh, the hard texts of the Bible. It's yeah. a Bible seminar class. It meets on Thursday evenings for an hour and 20 minutes. And the whole kind of premise of this class is rather than running away from the parts of the Bible that we struggle with, what if we ran to those parts of the Bible? What if we actually just decided to dig into them uh, and and let them be what they are? On the first night of the class, I had the students uh, re- watch, watch this uh, really helpful video uh, your friend uh, Isa Macaulay does on yeah. Uh, on the hard text of the Bible, and he he one of the things he talks about in that video is he says, um, you know, for a lot of people who come across hard texts in the Bible, they sort of assume they found a real problem with the Bible that nobody's ever really thought about. You know, that we wow, I've stumbled across, I, I, you know, read Bart Ehrman, I've figured out a problem that's you know in the Bible that right. nobody's known about. Kind of a gotcha, yeah, like this sort of we think we we are the first to stumble across this biblical. Um, conundrum, failing to recognize that uh, Jews and Christians for nearly 3,500 years have been wrestling with these texts and have fairly legitimate and thoughtful responses for every single one of them. Mm-hmm. So we're reading this week. It was actually last evening. We're filming here. We're together on a Friday. And we, uh, last evening, we're wrestling with, uh, because it is one of it is one of my hardest texts. I lose sleep over this text. Uh, is the story of Joshua 10 and the sun uh, in the sky stopping for a 24-hour period. Right. And uh, we did an exercise last night where we I had the students uh, read it. And as uh, I read the text out loud to them, I, I confessed to the class my greatest problem with the text. Um, and I said, my greatest problem when I read a text like this is I, as a Western man in in Western American culture have been trained to assume upon reading a text like this, that there must be some explanation for it, why it must be scientifically verifiable. Meaning, meaning I am taught to have to explain it. That's my assumption, right? Yeah. Is that I have to have an explanation for this thing. Right. And I, I went on a, just a 30 minute lecture rabbit trail last night about that rational need to have to explain the supernatural is 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 unfair. I mean, it, it's not only unfair; it it puts the Bible in a bind to have to fit what I want it to be. Mm-hmm. Now, it, you know, I remember you and I used to teach with Dr. Uh, Steve Delamer at George Fox uh, University before it was Portland Seminary, and yeah. he. Uh, I remember in, in an Old Testament class uh, with him, he he talked about how we, you know, in, in Western culture tend to have this assumption that all the supernatural things of the Bible must have some rational explanation. Um, and he coined, co- I, I will never forget this, he coined it as uh, <clears throat> anti-supernaturalistic presuppositionalism. <laughs> we presume things have to have a non-supernatural explanation. Right. And... I'm just amazed in reading these hard texts. I mean, I still lose sleep over the Joshua 10 text. I don't know how to explain it. I basically come to the point of saying, um, if I truly believe in the resurrection, and I do, then things like Joshua 10 totally have to be in the realm of possibility. Um, right. Meaning, man, if if you believe in the resurrection, but something like Joshua 10 is impossible, that's a really weird way to read the Bible. Uh, essentially, if you read the rest of the Bible through the lens of the resurrection, anything is possible. Mm-hmm. And you have to at least be open to it um, and, and, and accept the possibility that, uh, my goodness gracious, maybe my Western anti-supernaturalistic presuppositions 
are actually full of it. And the Bible's not full of it, but my assumptions are full of it. But still, when we read the Bible, Nijay, um, we're not only confronting God, we're confronting our own assumptions and our own our own values that uh, that we bring to the Bible. Right. Well, you know, I, my, my, my buddy Craig Keener, um, he's married, he's white, and he's married to uh, a woman from Congo, I think, uh, Democratic Republic Congo, Congo. And uh, he was studying the miracles in the book of Acts, and he came across a very common academic response that the miracles couldn't have happened then because they don't happen now. Uh, that's a very common philosophical kind of attitude, you know, quote unquote scientific attitude. And yet, Craig has spent a lot of time in Africa with his wife and his wife's family, and they've witnessed absolutely dozens and dozens and dozens of miracles, including people coming back from the dead and yep. healings, things that resemble the kinds of things we find in the Book of Acts. And so he wrote this massive two-volume. Uh, set on miracles. The first uh, book is um, stuff on biblical discussions and argumentations, kind of like you're talking about. The second one is he actually went to Africa and recorded eyewitness testimonies of modern day miracles. And one of the punchlines of his work is the assumptions we bring to the text. Yes. Not only as moderns, but as modern Westerners. Yeah. To say, this is impossible. Yep. Or, I never see this happen. Or, I never experience things like this. Yep. Um, that's uh, our filter that we're superimposing onto everybody else. Yes. Yeah. And Keener is, is brilliantly through experiences that he's had, but also through other people able to expose that, which I think is really helpful. Nijay, have you ever had a student, You, of course you have had a student say, well, why does it happen in Africa, but it doesn't happen here? And and I go, you know when I go for that, I go mm. to the John, uh, the Cana wedding story, when Jesus does the wedding, the miracle turns the water into the wine. The tech, John says that the... Uh, that the servants knew it was Jesus, but the master didn't. Yeah, and I can't help but wonder if God's in the God's economy, uh, He has just chosen at this moment in history to come to the least of these, yeah, um, and not come to those of us who think we're all that. I've heard and, that, and and that you know, you know, in some way, no wonder God's coming to Africa. Um, he's here too. It's not that He's not here. It's just um, we're, we're the masters, and we just can't see it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyways, I'm wrestling more than, I'm more than the Bible. I'm wrestling with my own assumptions. I'm just amazed at, for lack of better terms, I'm, I'm amazed at my own awareness of my own arrogance and assumptions. I demand the Bible to fit into. Right. And that, that disturbs me. I want, I don't want to live like that. I want, I want to assume what the Bible assumes. I want to... I want to be confronted by the assumptions of the Bible. I mean, the fact that Genesis 1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. There is no explanation for an argument for the existence of God. It is just assumed. Right. It's just assumed. It's taken for granted. I want to live that way where I, I, I allow the assumption of the Bible to violate my assumptions. Mm-hmm. And that's... That's terrifying to do because it makes you look like an idiot, you know. But at the same time, um, uh, fools for Jesus, right? Um, that's okay. What what 
you're a Bible scholar. What what keeps you up at night? Well, currently I am uh, doing work on Philemon. I just taught a course uh, that was that was partially on Philemon. And I'll be honest, before the last uh, you know twelve months or so, I hadn't done a lot of work on Philemon. I knew it existed in the Bible. I've read it before. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> um, I knew basically what it was about. Um, but I realized as I got into the scholarship that I had um, filled in gaps behind the text with a very neat and pretty narrative. So the neat and mm. pretty narrative is this. Philemon was a bad slave of a good Christian named, uh, or sorry, Onesimus was a bad slave of a good Christian named Philemon. Yep. Onesimus ran away from home, took money with him, stole money, uh, ran off, somehow bumped into Paul, who Paul was in prison. Paul leads him to Jesus or something like that. Yeah, Paul yeah. preaches the gospel to him, becomes a Christian. Paul sends him back to reconcile, and they have a warm hug. And uh, that's the story of Philemon. As I got in the scholarship, uh, I started to realize that there are some really important questions that we need to ask about the situation, that this idea that he ran away is is not actually ex- explicitly stated in the text. Uh, it's not stated that he stole anything. Um, so it actually goes back to the 3rd and 4th century that interpreters were saying, you know, painting this picture of a uh, of, of a of a sinful slave uh, who mm. needed Jesus, mm. um, but I read this volume of essays by African American scholars called Onesimus, our brother, and one thing they point out that is an awkward uh, realization as we moderns read this text is that the things that Paul doesn't say, wanting. Uh, Onesimus and Philemon, slave and slave owner, to uh, to reconcile and have a good relationship is a good thing. But Paul doesn't say, treat him with dignity because he's a human. Mm. Mm. He says, welcome him because he's a Christian now. Mm. And what's troubled me about this is um, Paul seems to have been okay with slavery, <laughs> it seems like. Based on the pastoral epistles, the household codes, Paul tells slaves to be good slaves. He says, as Christians, be good slaves. And he tells masters, you have a right to expect X, Y, and Z from your slaves, but just be good to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, rolling the back of my head, I'm wondering, how could Paul not see how uh, uh, degrading slavery is? how cruel slavery is. As I've been studying ancient slavery, especially Roman slavery, um, there are a lot of pieces of evidence that slaves, whether you're at the highest level or lowest level, were sexually abused. Both Mm -hmm. men and women Mm -hmm. slaves were sexually abused uh, pretty much uh, without limitation. Um, especially young prepubescent men uh, were were pederasty. Uh, yep, yeah. were were sexually abused. Women were sexually abused uh, very often, um, and so that's forced me to spend a lot of time thinking about this. Thinking about what's going through Paul's mind. Yeah, 
when he sees slaves going throughout a household. Yeah. And then the thought entered my mind, is it possible that Paul himself had slaves? Mm. It's definitely not impossible. It's not impossible. Um, AJ, that, that really troubles me. Yeah, absolutely. This is the word of God. And, um, this volume I was talking about from African American scholars talk about how Philemon as a text was used in uh, the Civil War era yeah. to justify slavery yep. by basically following a pattern of interpretation that goes back to Ambrosiaster and John Chrysostom and Theodore that said, um, I don't know if you know this, but there is an interesting issue in the early church where some Christians were saying, we don't need Philemon in the canon. Mm-hmm, right. Because it doesn't really teach about eschatology or soteriology. <laughs> They're basically saying it doesn't have the good stuff like Galatians and Romans. Uh, so then in steps Chrysostom and others, but Chrysostom has a pretty booming voice, to say, no, 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 it teaches us how to treat slaves properly. Mm-hmm. And this created a pattern, uh, so scholars argue, this created a pattern then of inadvertently justifying slavery. Interesting. Even though that may or may not have been Paul's intention at all, it became no. a sort of, it became an early church uh, way to concretize yeah. slavery into uh, the hermeneutics of the early yes, church. Yes, absolutely. So then these um, African American scholars are rightly pointing out how Philemon played a pretty central role in the pro-slavery Christian conversations. Mm, interesting. Um, and then you just ask what to do with that. And one one piece of that puzzle is um, Paul never actually gives voice to Onesimus. He never says, um, Onesimus wants to say these things to you. Mm. Now, that may have been a convention that the, the mediator does the speaking and this and that and the other, but there's been a lot of scholars that have talked about how Paul leaves... Onesimus basically out of it, mm. and um, and 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 that can today that seems like marginalization, harming, minimizing, so forth. This bothers me. It's not on the level of you know crisis of faith, but on that question of how is this the word of God for the people of God when we know that they have blind spots? Yeah, the biblical writers have blind spots. Yeah, they don't understand modern science. They haven't gone through abolitionistic revolutions. So there are clear limitations to their understanding sociologically, yep. economically, yep. other things. Yep. So do, do, do Nija, when you read a text like that, I mean, I, we could bring up a number of other texts in, in the biblical canon that do the same sort of thing for us. For example, when God tells Hagar to go back um, uh, to... Yeah, go home where she has similar. been abused and she has been treated very, very, very oppressively. And God says, go back. You and neither of us, if we were in a church situation where we had a wife who's being beat up by her husband, would say, well, just the right thing to do would be to go home. We wouldn't do that. Um, but someone might. Uh, unfortunately, someone yeah. could take those texts and use that as a way of saying that actually the best way you can serve your family is to go back and keep getting beat up. I mean, that's... Yeah. But... but in in a, in doesn't but can I just say is isn't God in a really funky position, in that God wanted to speak through Paul, knowing that Paul likely had some very odd cultural values that were hostile to 
uh, the ways of God. I mean, I think uh, Deuteronomy 21, where God makes very clear stipulations around um, when you sell a slave or buy a slave, you know, that ha- this is how to do it. Yeah. That doesn't yeah. mean God is pro-slavery. No. That means that God is in a position where he's having to put a law in place um, for something he absolutely disagrees with. I mean, in the state of Oregon, uh, we have laws around uh, how to get a divorce, but that doesn't mean the state wants us to get divorced. It's just, it's, it's, it's a... It's an accommodation yeah. that God is having to work in a moment in history, and He, God, is placed in a really tricky position of having to work through, um, you know, this tricky situation between Philemon and Onesimus. And yeah, did Paul likely have misogynist or um, views of slavery that you and I would view as being super, super bad? Yes, yet. God still found a creative way to speak through that. I don't know. So, so when you have a problem like this, Nijay, how do you approach your faith like that? Do you just hold on to that question and keep chewing on it and keep challenging? Do you, do you, do you, what, what do you do when you face a hard question with the Bible? Like, what do you actually do in that moment? I mean, we're talking about slow theology, right? Yeah. Doing patient theology. What does that look like for you right now as you're studying Onesimus and Philemon and wrestling with what Paul meant? In all this, yeah, you know, uh, so I'm gonna speak for myself, but my my posture is, um, this is God's word. This is this is what God uh, through the church wants to be an enduring message to His creatures. In that posture, I want to be attentive and listening to truth and gospel mm-hmm. in all texts. Now, it's not always going to be really direct. It's not always going to be tit for tat. So uh, in one of my books, so I'm doing a little advertisement here, but in one of my books called A Beginner's Guide to New Testament Studies, I have a chapter on hermeneutics, which is just a big fancy word for a philosophy or approach to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Right. So I talk about different scholars' approaches, but I talk about two approaches that are common that are actually terrible. <laughs> one is I call direct universal where you just take the text at face value and apply it literally to all universally. Yeah, yeah. So if we did that with household codes, we would justify slavery. It's a terrible yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. If we did that with gouge your eye out, you would gouge your eye out. Yeah. Right? We, we know better than that. That's and called yet, direct. You called that direct. What's that? Direct universal. Direct universal. Okay. Yeah. So we apply it directly. We apply all text universally. And I, that's a that's a mistake, like you were saying, or else you're going to start you know, using shekels you know, to sell slaves and things like that. So that doesn't make any sense. The, on the other one, opposite end of the spectrum, which is also common, I call it a la carte. Mm, a la yeah. carte is where you just pick and choose. You just pick the texts that you think are relevant, and you just pick and choose what you like. Then you end up just creating yeah, a Bible that suits your preferences and yep. desires. Yep. That's dangerous. Yep. So what's the alternative? Um, the alternative is God's going to use different texts in different times in our life. There is a discernment there on what's God trying to teach and in many ways, you know, my professor in seminary who taught me about this was Walter Kaiser, Old Testament scholar. He says, uh, try to focus on the theological and ethical principles mm-hmm. that are at the heart of the text yep. instead of focusing on uh, the specifics. So, yep. for example, don't braid your hair. 
Are we really not supposed to braid our hair? No. It was that that was symbolic of something. Yes. And we have to figure out what that is. So with a text like Philemon, what's been a redeeming factor for me is when Paul says, welcome him back as more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Yes. Now, scholars have focused on the terminology more than a slave, asking the question, was was he telling him to free him? Well, Paul doesn't actually say that. I think Paul was saying, you need to decide what it's going to take to make that extreme step of reconciling. Right. But I want to focus on the latter part, which is as a beloved brother. Uh, Slaves were property. They weren't people, according to Roman value. And so to treat him as a a beloved brother is to humanize him. Yes. It's to to make him part of your family. But even the word beloved, Mm. Paul uses this language... For Philemon, he actually starts out the letter saying, beloved Philemon. Yeah. So he's saying, just as we have warm Christian fellowship, and I love you and you love me, you need to love this person like you ah, love me. Gotcha. And now we start to see what scholars call status destabilization. Uh, I think it's there. Um, now, the pushback would be, well, we ended up having uh, justification for slavery through this text. But if I'm trying to read the wisdom that Paul has in the moment... And I guess that's what I'm saying, is I'm trying to see the light of the gospel that Paul's given in the moment. Hmm. Hmm. In the moment, Paul is saying, um, what would you do, Philemon, if I were showing up? You would throw a party. You would roll out the red carpet. Yeah, do that for geez. this slave. That's beautiful. As opposed to killing him, beating him, yeah, having right. him crucified. I mean, there's all sorts of things. There's one story for the ancient world where... Uh, uh, a slave of a very elite level master, a slave killed the master. And the Senate was worried that if this became normal, thing, then we yeah. would see a lot of it. So they kill, So the Senate condemned all of the slaves of that household to death, hmm. which numbered 500. Holy moly. So imagine... You're a slave on a next door estate working for that, you know, master, and you get a knock on the door. Ugh. Right? We're rounding you up. Why? Because this other person killed, you know? And that's the world that Paul's in, and here's here's Paul saying this. So, I, I don't try to make everything neat and rosy. Like, you were talking about wrestling with this Joshua passage. I, in my classes, I normalize not having all the answers and not giving all the answers. But at the end of the day, AJ, I come to Scripture with hope, uh, with um, empathy. I don't know the right word for it, but I trust God that he wants to teach me something good yeah. from even the, the hardest texts. Yeah, yeah. I told our student, Stanley Harawas says, um, he's taken a lot of flack for this, but I, I don't know. I kind of think he's right, um, that we shouldn't read the Bible anymore. Uh, by, n- n- by ourselves. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he talks about how dangerous it is to just give people a Bible and just read it. Because if, if an everyday person read Deuteronomy 21 or Philemon, you, you could do the direct approach that you were talking about and just yeah. sort of apply. And that would be the worst way to read it. And, and what we need to do is read these texts in light of the broader Christian community and not just individually. Um, 
you know, I said to you during one of our breaks uh, in recording, I said, you know, in the in the Protestant in the Reformation, when the Catholics and the Protestants split, and I heard somebody else say this, I'm borrowing it from somebody else, but they said uh, that when the, the the Catholics and the Protestants split, the Protestants got the Bible, yeah. uh, and the Catholics got tradition and the the uh, and the formation components of of the faith, and and that we now live in a time where where we Protestants have the Bible, but we've just completely forgotten the fact that we have two thousand years of history of having read these texts. Gosh. There's a real danger, NJ, in reading the Bible by yourself. Well, what's funny is, AJ, uh, we're both Protestants. Yes, 100%. Uh, but our spiritual director, who's also Protestant, teaches us Ignatian spirituality. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so even though we, you know, we value uh, the Protestant heritage, we're learning formation from the Catholics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I have Catholic friends who say like I listen, I listen to the evangelicals to hear the Bible. So it's like we need each other. I mean, it, it's almost yeah. like it's almost like the church has gone through a divorce, and we need to start talking to each other again. Um, but the broader point is, these texts. When we read a hard text, um, maybe we shouldn't just rely on all of our own wisdom and integrity. Maybe we should humble ourselves and listen to what a lot of other people have had to say about these texts and that hard text. And probably, Nijay, the worst place to go to figure out what to do with the hard texts is YouTube. Um, and, and just going to, um, <laughs> social media to figure out the answers. Um, we've got a broad, beautiful 2000 year old history to add nothing of the Jewish tradition, uh, uh, but before that of, of how to read these texts and, and we should slow down and humble ourselves before them. Well, we're wrapping up this episode, but, but as I've seen, um, the effects of social media on discourse. And I don't want to be the person to say social media is always bad, but there is a pressure to make a decision, to make a judgment, to say something's yes. bad yes. Immediately. or good. Yes. And and uh, when it comes to biblical interpretation, especially as part of our spirituality, that's a dangerous game. Oh my goodness gracious. And, and so I found out in the last, I found in the last six years, um, that I'm resisting the temptation to make snap judgments about about biblical text. Yeah. And just listen and just listen and learn yeah. and just kind of hold things more in my heart and in private conversations where I feel like we're not we're not going to be immediately judged. Have you noticed we are all belittling and mocking social media and yet we're all still on it? It's like an <laughs> abusive relationship. I mean, it it really is. Like we we all hate it, but just keep finding ourselves being drawn back in this weird, can, why are we? Let's just be done, NJ. I'm done. You want to be done? Well, okay. you want to jump? You so want to jump off the cliff? My spiritual director says that when I struggle with an addiction like social media, this answer is not abstinence. Um, and so he's actually put me on a limited <laughs> supply of social media huh. for, my, for my own good. Interesting. Uh, so it's one of those things. Christians forever have invested in most recent technology of communication, whether it's letter writing or the printing press or whatever. So we, you know, Christians throughout history have been the great uh, innovators of communication. Yeah. Um, but we have to know the dangers too. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, it sounds like I need to meet with your spiritual director at some point. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll come around to my problems at some point. Yeah. All right, NJ. Well, I'm so glad to know that you struggle with the Bible and you still love Jesus. Uh, that's encouraging to me because you're a Bible scholar. And if you love Jesus and you can still do so with big questions, that's hopeful for me. Struggling to me is a part of learning. So I hope that we both continue to be lifelong learners. Yeah. Amen. <laughs>